Thank you. Please be seated. And let's grab our Bibles again and go back to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, I want to take the time to read the letter once more through before we continue and close off this correspondence from Christ. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's just pray once more before we conclude this message. Lord, it's been a tremendous day of fellowship already. What a joy to have spent so much time together. Thank you for this church and thank you for their patience with me. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we've been able to spend in your word, the time we've been able to spend dealing with church matters in our meeting Uh, fellowship that we've enjoyed around a cuppa uh, and around lunch and now Lord the conclusion of a series but also of a particular message to a particular church uh, that uh, you've recorded for us in your word and now as before I need help I need strength and I rely upon you for that help us to be able to concentrate uh, engage and employ our minds in this wonderful activity of learning from your word Impress upon us the aspects that we need to know uh, and the things in which we need to grow uh, and so that we would be uh, unlike this church and like the Lord Jesus. Thank you for uh, what's before us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I think pretty much everybody was here earlier, but uh, for the sake of a very quick review, we already looked at the characteristics of Christ in that he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness and the beginning of God's creation. And then we turn to look at the complaints of Christ as seen in three ways. That the church was lukewarm, apathetic and indifferent, firstly. That they were conceited, proud and self-sufficient, secondly. And that they were undiscerning, unaware and unconcerned. Uh, And uh, in that we looked at 18 traits very quickly of the lukewarm church as given to us by Francis Chan. And uh, we talked about uh, the songs of the lukewarm church and... uh, we, uh, we spent some time dealing with these complaints uh, that were issued by the Lord Jesus to the church that was his. And uh, I encouraged us before closing off 
that first portion of the message to take inventory, to think and to meditate about our own hearts and our own lives. And so we come now to point number three in the overall points of the message, and I have entitled this The Counsel of Christ. Look with me in verse 18 of our text. The Lord Jesus says something quite unusual. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Before we even attempt to understand this truth, what I need us to see, which is of immense value, is the fact that Christ does not disregard or abandon his failing church. He's just complained. He's just criticized in a holy and a righteous way, the church. But he does not now go on to say, and I'm done with you. It's over. I'm finished. I wash my hands of you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't disregard or abandon his church. But we see, as those of us who've been in the discipleship course of late, that the holiness of Christ will not simply stand by as his church operates with sin. And the justice of Christ means that he will not withdraw his judgment and chastening hand. He must do that to his church because he is just. But we also see the love and the mercy of God in his willingness to counsel and to chasten and to correct his church for their good and for his glory. And though the condition of the Laodicean church is disastrous at best, Christ provides a means of correction. He counsels the church here to buy or purchase three things from his incalculable chest of spiritual treasures. Now, before we look at those three things, let me just point out the fact that the word buy here does not imply that they could somehow earn it or achieve it. That's not the point here whatsoever. The point here, rather, is that the expense needed on their part to acquire these things was the renunciation of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. They had to humble themselves if they were going to acquire these precious things that the Lord Jesus says, come buy off me. And remembering that this church knows all about buying and selling. It knows all about wealth. This is not an unusual concept here. G. Campbell Morgan again writes this. Christ approaches the church that he is about to spew out of his mouth in disdain and opens before them the storehouse of his infinite riches and says, if you are only conscious of your poverty, I have riches. If you are but conscious of your nakedness, I have clothing. If you are but conscious of your blindness, I have eye solve for you. The cost associated with Christ's treasures are not money or wealth, but humility, repentance and self-denial. And so let's look at them quickly, these purchases. Purchase number one that Jesus says, come buy off me, is gold refined by fire. Well, what does he mean? What does Jesus mean? He come buy off me gold refined by fire. They'd witnessed gold and great wealth on a daily basis and they knew full well he was not speaking in the physical realm. As a banking centre for the region, Laodicea and the believers in that place knew the value of gold 
And Jesus chose gold as the first element for purchase. But the gold here refined by fire undoubtedly refers to all manner of spiritual riches, beginning with Christ himself, who is in him hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The first and most important aspect is that they would take hold of Christ again as their treasure, the one to whom they would hold on to, savour and love supremely. This is the gold which has been tested and proven to be true and is of supreme value. Christ is speaking of sterling spiritual wealth as contrasted with the counterfeit wealth of this life which Laodicea boasted of. They say, I'm rich. I've got everything I need, but in actual fact, Jesus says, come buy off me gold, that is the real deal. And isn't it true, Christian, that all the gold in all of the world cannot be compared with the refined, precious gold of Jesus himself and the spiritual blessings associated with him. You can't pay me to not love him. You can't pay me to somehow disregard Christ because we've tasted and seen how good he is and the wealth that's contained within him. And the church had forgotten. The church had moved from it. And Jesus says, come by, come back, come and purchase of me that which is lasting, that which is worthwhile. Having bought this gold, she will no longer be poor. But then he says, secondly, he says, don't come by gold refined by fire alone. He says, come by white garments. And this again is a parable of the Lord Jesus. Remember what I said earlier, the Laodiceans were very involved in the clothing and fashion trade of the day. Their black wool was famous throughout the entire Roman Empire. Jesus draws An amazing contrast between the natural clothing that they laboured so hard to make and the spiritual clothing that he alone can provide. The white garments, no doubt you are familiar with that term in scripture, speaks of Christ's righteousness and his character, of which they've already partaken in salvation, but they have somehow not walked in it so far as they're in their Christian life. They have moved away from walking in the righteousness of Christ. And the Lord Jesus calls his church to return to a place of sanctification, whereby they are not only positionally cleansed, but practically wearing the garments, the white garments associated with holiness and virtue and purity. And then he says, thirdly, he says, don't just come and get refined gold. Don't just come and get the white garments that are my righteousness, but now get salve to anoint your eyes. And again, an incredible picture for this church there, specifically at Laodicea. We've mentioned the Phrygian powder. We looked at it on the PowerPoint earlier. This was manufactured in Laodicea and it was a precious substance. They would grind this particular rock and mingle it with oil and they would apply it to the eyes and sometimes to the ears. Uh, Physically, it was there to aid with diseases and infections in the eye. And Jesus, as he does so marvellously, takes a physical picture and now he calls the church to buy from him the spiritual ointment that would provide clarity and cleansing to their spiritual eyes. Wow. 
It seems reasonable then to me, and there are many interpretations, but to me it seems reasonable that this spiritual salve referred to here is a picture of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. He takes the word of God and anoints our eyes with it that we may see clearly the path ahead. To me, it seems in my study of this passage that this is a wonderful reference to simply walking in the Spirit. This salve for the eyes produces a removal of all of those cataracts, removal of of all of that opaqueness and that lack of clarity. And we find that that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. He removes those scales and he gives us clear guidance moving forward. And so I would suggest to us that gold so precious is Christ himself and all that relates to him and that great glorious white robe is his righteousness that we put on. And the salve is his, the Holy Spirit and his work in our life. And so the Lord Jesus says, I counsel you, come and buy. And when you do, you will be rich. But then, fourthly, in our points, our overall points, I want you to see not only that, but also the care of Christ. In verse 19, we see here, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The care of Christ. What an amazing thought, church, that Christ should love his church notwithstanding her many failures. Such is the immutable love of God. This is not a good situation. This is not a good church. This is not a lovely bride. This is not a pure bride. And yet we see the love of God continuing to overflow so that he says, the ones that I love, and that's you, Laodicea, the ones that I love, I will reprove and I will discipline. And how is the love of Christ seen in this situation? We don't have time, but Hebrews 12, 6 to 7 says, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We look at the discipline of God sometimes and we say, I don't want that. But in saying we don't want that, we say, I don't want to be a son. I don't want the father to correct my ways and to demonstrate his love in that regard. And this word reprove is to convict or confront. It's to challenge, to admonish. You see, true love does not shy away from confrontation. It seeks to rebuke in love, not for the purpose of shaming, but in order to purify and to build up. And Christ lovingly rebukes his church and then disciplines it to produce a greater measure of love and faithfulness and maturity. Please note this church, note this Christian, his intent is never harm, always help. It is never condemnation, but for the sake of restoration. It is never cruel, it is always kind. Our loving Saviour will not allow us to continue on the path of destruction. He will always bring loving correction for our good and his glory. And at this juncture, I want to make a comment here. Many have said... Not many. Some believe that 
uh, the church of the Laodicean is the apostate church in that it's the church that isn't really a church. It's not really Christians. I don't believe that fact. In my study of it very carefully, I, I, I read and I watched and I observed many, many things. And right throughout it, I see here the special love from Christ for his church. I see a faulty and a failing church. I see a church that's in great disarray and, and in real trouble. But I do not see this as an apostate church that is not Christian because they can't be. They're not a church then. And the Lord Jesus is writing to a church and he's saying, you've got some real problems, but there's a way out and I love you and I'm going to chasten you so that you become what you should be. And I believe that's what this church is, contrary to what some would hold. I want you to see fifthly here as we move along, because we want to hit one particular subject, uh, which is very important in just a moment. Fifthly, I want you to see the command of Christ in verse 19. He says, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. You say, what's the way out? How can Laodicea get out of this hole that they are in of lukewarmness, of of conceit and, and these other matters that are a great problem? Well, here he gives the answer, the command, be zealous and repent. Christ is here commanding an inward passion for what is right, resulting in a change of heart and direction. Christ cannot call an unsaved group of people to be zealous about something they know nothing of. And so here he says, be zealous. Zeal is the opposite of lukewarmness. It's the opposite of lukewarmness. And be zealous comes first because it relates to a general change of the spirit. Whereas repentance is a decisive act at a moment in time. The call here, the urgent call is the call to be ardent and zealous. The Cambridge Bible in its notes records this for this verse. Shake off thy languid, lukewarm temper, then then thou wilt be able to start on a new life of righteousness. You see, the way back to a right relationship with Christ is not hard to see or understand. But it requires total surrender. It requires a stripping of ourselves. And that's hard. Stripping is always hard. Surrender is always hard. Self-denial is always hard. And then bringing it to us this this afternoon for just a moment, would you return to a place where Christ and the love for Christ is aflame? Would you regain the lost ground through complacency, indifference and lethargy? Is that you? Would you do that? It can only happen when there is a return to the hot springs which boil with love for Christ. And decisive repentance is made, resulting in a change of life and behaviour. It's the same thing right throughout the scripture, all the way along, isn't it? It's be zealous for what's true and what's right and repent of what is wrong and get back to where you need to be. Christ enthroned in the heart, Christ enthroned in every aspect of my life. That is always the way back. If you're wondering this afternoon, how can I come out of this lukewarmness? It is to concentrate once again on Jesus Christ and move towards him as he draws you on the cords of his love. But point number six is the one that perhaps affected me in such a great way. It all did, but this one in particular. 
Point number six, I want you to see the condition of Christ. The condition of Christ. In Revelation 3 and verse 20, we read these words. It's been a long day, I know, and we're probably tired, but watch these words. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This portion of scripture is one of the most used and most abused in the whole of the Bible. And the reason for it is that countless evangelistic tracts and messages include a depiction of Christ knocking on the door of the unregenerate's heart, begging them to let him in. We've all heard that. You've heard evangelists, you must have. You've heard preachers use this verse. And although there is a secondary aspect to which I'm sort of okay with that interpretation, that is not what is spoken of here at all. This is not the door of the unsaved heart whereby Jesus says, I want to come in, let me in, let me in, let me in. That's Arminian teaching where we think that somehow um, eventually we're going to open the door out. When it comes to salvation, it's always God who opens the door of the heart anyway. This is not the unsaved person. This is the Christian. This is the church by which Jesus is standing outside, excluded from them and knocking to enter into that which is his own. Oh boy, did that hit me hard. I knew that truth, but boy, it hit me hard as I thought about this. And I want you to consider the following truths regarding this verse. First thing I want you to see here is that in this case, in this analogy, Jesus stands excluded from his people. Behold, look, he says, I stand at the door knocking. What a lamentable tragedy that the Lord of his church has been excluded from their daily way of life and conduct. But I say very quickly as I look to them, I look at myself and I say, how often, Daniel Chris, do you exclude the Christ of the church that bought your soul? How often do you leave him outside your plans, your goals, and even your life in the general sense? We know he's within. That's not a question. This here is not a theological conundrum. This is a picture that Jesus is painting. He's not saying, well, suddenly they've, you know, they don't have Christ within them anymore. That's not what he's saying. This is a picture. He's saying that you've left me out. It's like you're trying to go through all the worship of a church and yet you've left the central person out of it. It's as though we would come in here and the Lord Jesus in a physical person would come to the door and we would say, no thanks, we're okay. We're going to do it our way. You stay out there, we'll catch up with you later. That's the picture here if we were going to bring it to our own 21st century concept. It's as though he's out there just behind those doors and we're saying, we're all right. We'll do this. We've got this. Yeah, we've gone through the motions of worship. And yet we've missed it all. We've left him out. The Lord Jesus stands excluded pictorially from his people. 
It's not suggesting, please make sure you understand, it's not suggesting that Christ has ceased to be their saviour. That's not what's being said here, but rather that he's no longer the object of their worship. So far have they moved from truth and ardent love that Christ has been banished or excluded from their presence. What a sad, lamentable tragedy. But then secondly, I want you to see in this condition of Christ, not only does Jesus stand excluded from his people, but Jesus stands knocking. You say, is there much to learn about that? Yeah, there's a lot to learn. The wonderful and monumental truth here is that Christ, having all power and all authority, does not barge through the door of the heart. He does not just come through as would a train, through a train station. He is awaiting. He is knocking. And he is gentlemanly in his conduct with us. He demands a change of attitude and behavior. And he will eventually, by his knocking and by his chastising of us, bring us to that door that we might open it. But the reality of it is he stands there knocking. What a gracious, gracious God that he would knock. And the Greek tense here is that he is knocking and he keeps on knocking. It's not, well, I tried at Mount Cathedral today. They wouldn't let me in. I tried at Laodicea once. They wouldn't let me in. This is the concept of a continuous knocking upon the heart, the heart's door. Jesus stands knocking. He lovingly knocks, waits and pleads for his people to gain an entrance into their life. But then I want you to see thirdly, he doesn't only stand excluded from his people and he doesn't just stand knocking, but Jesus lovingly calls out for our attention. It says, if anyone hears my voice. Here is an incredible truth, Christian, for us to learn. The key to opening the door is to first hear his voice. If Christ is going to gain an entrance or regain an entrance into every part of our life, it begins by us listening to his voice, to hear him first. When we give attention To what Jesus says, then we can be rescued from our lukewarmness. We cannot rescue ourselves from our lukewarmness. Our own mental faculties and our own uh, desires and our own intellect will never produce any aspect of coming out of lukewarmness. It must begin by saying, I hear your voice at the door. I'm listening to the things you're saying. I'm hearing the beckoning of your voice to open the door so that that lackadaisical attitude of my Christian life would be dispensed with. Too often the noise and clamour of our own heart's desires and the world about us are so loud that the soft voice of the gentle shepherd is not heard. Take note, we must tune our spiritual ears into the frequency of Christ's sweet call. Jesus lovingly calls out for attention. Number four, in this as a sub point, he stands excluded from his people. He stands knocking. He lovingly calls out for our attention. And then fourthly, Jesus promises rich fellowship. 
To hear the voice of God is not enough. We must also open the door of our heart so that true fellowship can be had. Please note this truth right now. Too often we are engaged in distant fellowship whereby we talk through the door without really opening ourselves up to the one who delights to come in and sup with us. We're too busy passing notes under the door and talking through the obstacles when Jesus says, open the door and you'll see the joy of fellowship full and free in me. But instead we have this distant kind of fellowship, obstacles that are in our way and stop us from having what the real fellowship is. And what does he say? He says, I will come into him. And he doesn't mean I'll come into him as in I'll come and abide inside him. That's already happening. He means I will come into that house, that home, that church. And he says, and I will eat with him. Interestingly, please note what has changed here. It was about the church. It's now become about an individual. He says, I will come into him, not them. That tells us this is an individual decision of every church person at Laodicea to open the door of their own heart. See, there's no grand door for the whole church. The church is a group of people and every person must therefore open the door of the heart to allow the Lord Jesus in to have that sweet fellowship. And if that wasn't enough, how about this for a rich Greek treasure? When he says, I will come into him and eat with him. The word eat there is the Greek word dephon, which is the main meal of the day and was always accompanied with talking, sharing and fellowship. This was not a hurried snack. He could have used a different word. There's lots of words for coming together and eating. This is the one that says, I'm going to come in. I'm going to sit. We're going to chat. We're going to spend some time. This is the main meal and we're going to have a great time of fellowship together. This wasn't a fast food restaurant, come in and out and see you later sort of thing. What a precious thought that is. The Lord Jesus says, if you'll open, if you'll let all the obstacles out the way, I'm going to come through. And when I come through, we're going to experience some great fellowship. I'm going to sit with you. You're going to sit with me. We're going to talk. We're going to share. We're going to have fellowship. It's going to be amazing. Truly. There is no fellowship to be had in this life that can equate to the wonder and the splendor and the joy and the nourishment found in close communion with our Lord. You know, there's all kinds of things this world tells us that are the greatest things, you know, a new job, a new car, an active sex life, whatever it might be that creates this uh, wonderful feeling of, of being above it all and etc, etc, etc. The world tells us that all of these things are, are things that are just amazing. But I can tell you from experience that there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing in all of this life that can equal or equate to that fellowship with Christ. True fellowship. Not that fellowship where we pass the notes under the door, not that obstacle-based fellowship where the door's shut and we sort of talk through it. Uh, I'm talking about the, the real deal. When my heart is open towards him and he enters into my life in every aspect and it's him and me. It's that concept that that hymn writer could say, I come to the garden alone. While the dew is still on the roses 
and I talk with him and I walk with him and I share my pains and my hurts and my feelings and my thoughts and we talk and we share and we eat and we commune and nothing in all the world is like this, the hymn writer says. Nothing. And I know you know this, church, because if you are a Christian, you have to have experienced this. That time and place when sin is not a problem at that moment, we've confessed it and it's close. The closest that there can be in all the world. I will come into him. I wonder, will we open the door? I wonder how long it's been since the door was last opened. I want you to ponder as I did last night. I want you to ponder and think about when did I truly, not what everybody else thinks and sees, when did I truly experience that communion that is like none other? Not when did I read my Bible because I had to, or when did I have a few couple of minutes here and I I had a prayer time and, and those things are good. But I'm talking about when did you actually last have that blessed communion with Christ? Nobody else, no distractions, the TV isn't on, the kids aren't running around or whatever might be those things that cause you to, but you had that time aside with him and him alone. And oh, it was precious. That is the place of worship. That is the place that Jesus says, open and we'll have this and it'll be grand. Lastly, and boy, could we linger on that. But lastly, I want you to see the conquerors through Christ. The conquerors through Christ. He says in verse 21, the Lord Jesus says, the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The final comments of the Lord Jesus are, you're going to be zealous, you're going to repent. Uh, I'm standing at the door, you're going to open the door and we're going to have this tremendous fellowship and you are going to conquer and one day I'm now going to lift your gaze from that which is temporal and we're going to look to that which is eternal, Jesus says, where you will ultimately be conquerors in the fullest sense. You're failing and you're struggling and you're failing and you're fighting and, but one day you are going to be conquerors. One day you're going to reach that place. Were it not enough that his letter lovingly expresses his complaints and then provides a remedy, but now he issues an irreversible promise of eternal fellowship in the next life. As many of the Laodiceans that were truly saved and therefore heeded the call of Christ to be zealous and repent, they were given this precious promise of sitting alongside Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. Not only were they promised incredible fellowship on earth by opening the door, but even more majestic form awaited them in glory. And to bring all of this home to us as we close, as believers, we claim these same promises as conquerors, those who are overcomers. And church, the kingdom of God is coming. And we will, like these Laodiceans who did repent and were zealous, we will have the supreme joy and privilege of sitting with our Saviour 
and his father in undisturbed, ceaseless fellowship and praise. Ponder that thought. Let that thought sink in. We are getting some practice. Open the door. Allow him into every aspect of your life. The closets and all the skeletons that are in there. Let him cleanse those out that fellowship can be restored in the practical sense. And get ready for heaven because that's what it's going to be like. In conquering, we will have fellowship in the fullest sense. Unceasing praise and fellowship with him. Supreme joy. I don't know about you, but the Laodicean church has taught me so much over the last 24 hours. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, I'm sorry you're in that predicament, church. But boy, you helped me that day. And I hope they continue to help me as I consider these things. But the challenge for us in closing is that we would be faithful. And that we would be fervent. That we would be ardent. That we would be boiling over like the hot springs of Hierapolis and not waiting for it to channel all the way through some six miles to us and then wonder why we're just a tepid Christian. Wonder why we're lukewarm. Wonder why it's all gone cold. So I encourage us, let us be faithful, let us be fervent now as we await his arrival because he's coming again and he's coming soon. Father, thank you for the strength and enablement to preach these two times today. Thank you for our church and thank you, Lord, for uh, their interest in truth, their pursuit of it. Lord, I pray you'd protect us, protect us from being the compromising churches that we've read about, from being the church that leaves its first love, the dead church. Lord, the church that... uh, will allow any kind of teaching in that uh, is uh, in total opposition to your word. But then, Lord, this church too, this lukewarm church, Lord, protect us, cause us to constantly return to the refined gold, to constantly wear the robe of white righteousness, to constantly be anointed with the salve that is the Spirit of God moving and working on our behalf. Cause us to be zealous and repent if necessary today. Help us, Lord, we need help. Uh, Help me. And Lord, I have no doubt that the week ahead, having listened and heard these truths today, will be fraught with all manner of dangers, all manner of spiritual attacks. And I pray that you would protect and preserve your people. I pray that you would cause us to flee from sin and run to you, uh, that we would find shelter and refuge in you for all of that this week. Strengthen and help us, we pray. As we close and as we sing that song we sang already, set my heart, O dear Father, on thee and thee only, a passion for thee. May that be true in Jesus' name. Amen.